Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Weaver and this is the Digital Agency Show. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top agencies and entrepreneurs. I am really glad you're here. And once again, it's time to transform your business mindset. I am really excited to have Phil Lockwood on our program today. Phil is a longtime friend, advisor, and colleague of mine. He's actually also uh, an investor of ours here at YouGurus. And uh, Phil actually even acquired our old web agency, Hot Press Web. So Phil and I have done a lot of business together over the years. He actually started his agency, Creation Chamber, in 2001. And he's going to be talking a lot about uh, the evolution of that business over the course of those almost 15 years now. Uh, And Phil's also given a lot of talks uh, to our community here at YouGurus on profitability and how to increase your margins as a web agency, which is really important stuff. He serves as a uh, advisory board member to Adobe for their Business Catalyst product and has uh, done thousands of projects spanning so many different technologies. He currently manages hundreds of clients, has an amazing business, definitely worth uh, emulating and learning from. And uh, without further ado, we want to welcome Phil Lockwood to our program. Thank you. Good to be here. Why don't you take a, a minute or so and just tell us about you personally? Like, what's what's the overview of, of who Phil Lockwood is? And, uh, and then also maybe give us a quick overview of your business creation chamber. Sure. Uh, I actually was born and raised in rural Indiana. I would imagine that most of my family and friends back home voted for Trump, so you're welcome. But <laughs> I spent probably the first, uh, well, my entire childhood, really, assuming that when I grew up, I was going to be a fighter pilot. And um, started taking flight lessons when I was a kid. I ended up going into the Air Force. And um, when I was about 20 years old, I was at the Air Force Academy and kind of did some soul searching. And for a number of reasons that I don't really have time to get into right now, decided that it was time to make a change. So I ended up resigning from the Air Force Academy with the idea that I was going to become some sort of a businessman instead. And at the time, I had no idea what it was. But I do remember taking a taxi from the Air Force Academy to the airport the day I resigned and having the taxi driver, this was in 94, having the taxi driver say, so what do you think of this new information superhighway thing? And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he's like, yeah, it's like just tons of information for everything that you can imagine. And I really, I thought he was talking about some sort of a highway where it had kiosks that you'd pull off and like get information on. I had no idea what he was talking about, but within a matter of months, I had gotten my first real computer, uh, Power Mac, and started getting into this internet thing and started doing um, some design work initially and then learning HTML and so on. And this was only about maybe five years before I started Creation Chamber. So that ended up being 2001 when, I, when we were officially founded, but uh, I did some consulting and such leading up to that period of time and got to ride that dot-com wave for at least a little while, a few years before starting Creation Chamber. And when everything kind of went belly up with dot-com, I got laid off from the job I had at the time, decided to start Creation Chamber. So we've gone through a number of iterations in the past 15 years. Um, Initially, it was all about making the agency as big and as legitimate as we could because I just needed that legitimacy to feel like I was doing something real. So we got it up to about 70 people. 
and then took it down to about one. Really, myself <laughs> for a number of years. So, so, uh, so, fighter years. pilot uh, to digital agency owner. That that just seems like the the most common uh, transition that we see with mm-hmm. folks out there. I mean, we we see that every day here at, at You Gurus, right? The, the fighter <laughs> pilot to digital agency owner uh, right. uh, story. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean uh, these days, you know, Creation Chamber is kind of somewhere in the middle, um, but. I think that it really has been a very fulfilling journey. I'm very fulfilled with what we're doing today, and we can certainly get into that in more detail here in a little bit. But, um, you know, we still focus on many of the things that we did on day one. We are a web agency, so we do a lot of website design development. We do a lot of the user experience, and these days we're starting to branch out into some additional areas of online marketing. Um, But the model certainly is different today than it was 15 years ago. Um, for what we've put together, but at the end of the day, we're still kind of creating websites and trying to make them effective, right? I, I feel like for a lot of budding, you know, agency owners out there, they have this picture. In, we have this picture in our heads, at least I did, of like creating this like agency, right? There's like lots of people and the really really cool office space and like just tons of people and all these amazing like banner clients and you know like the happy hours and the foosball tables and and what I'm hearing from you is like you had that the 70 person company and then you had the one person company. So like I guess you know how did you you know did you initially plan like I think a lot of people do to create some like mega business and like why did that go from seventy to one? Yeah, really, that was the plan initially. I mean, not not enormous. I wasn't thinking um, of ever going public or anything like that. I never thought that that was a good fit for this particular business. Although I had started other companies in the past that didn't work out quite as well, and that was kind of the idea with those. But you know, with this one, it was kind of one step at a time. And the first step was to kind of dominate locally. There was another agency here in Denver and I came across their website one day and just started reading up on their team and their culture and their clients. And I thought, man, that's, that's where we need to be. So it was a really clear vision at that point. I knew that that's where we needed to get. And once we got there, which we did, um, kind of overtaking that role here in Denver then it was like, all right, what's the next step? How do we how do we take this national? And um, that had its own set of challenges and its own unique vision. But again, I think that having started a handful of smaller companies before this, and not really knowing what the hell I was doing at that time, there was a strong internal drive to just do something that was going to be legitimate, where I could say, look, this is a real company. You know, we've got the the real things that that companies have, that companies do. So I, at the time, thought that was all about having the traditional things that you would see in an agency, like a big, talented in-house staff and really cool office space in downtown Denver, not somewhere out in the boonies, you know. And so that was that was the vision. That was everything that we did was focused around trying to make that a reality. So it was really like uh, you guys were more focused on kind of where you were at. I mean, how much of your your growth was was customer focused or was it all just kind of based on like, let's just become like the best, coolest agency in Denver? I, you know, I would say that the latter is probably pretty accurate with a very strong emphasis on cool. That was the (laughs) idea. If, If you're the cool agency, everything else will take care of itself. That was the idea. 
So and I, clearly, I think that's ridiculous now. But it, but I feel like there's a lot of folks out there that um, maybe want that or or have that desire for that in 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 their head right now. Like they've painted the picture of like I want the cool like office space and the, the, the frosted glass windows and the, the big conference room. And I want to, you know, have that type of established business. And I think you hit on it is that, you know, making yourself feel like maybe like legitimizing yourself that you have the office space. I mean, I think for any web pro or freelancer agency owner that's working from home, there's almost like this deep rooted shame in like, Oh, I can't afford the office space or I'm not far enough along. I'm not established. I'm not legitimate. I'm just working from my, my, my basement or my bedroom or my home office. And I feel like for a lot of people, there is that desire to create ultimately what you created. And, and what I'm hearing from you is you actually created that, that image of what everybody has in their head. And then you, you got to that and it was almost like maybe you realized you didn't want that anymore. I think that as soon as you realize you're legitimate, then the need to prove it to everybody else goes away or at least diminishes significantly. At least that's what happened with me. Um, once I got to that point where I had confidence in my ability to do things, then I didn't feel the need to prove it to clients, prospects, employees, or anybody else. Then the, the game changed and it wasn't about seeming cool anymore. It was about making money. And I think that that was a bit of a toggle. Um, you could certainly have both, but for me, it was a toggle. Um, I really didn't care too much about my personal income in the earlier years. I didn't pay myself as much as I paid most of our employees. Just knowing that I was building something that would be a value, I figured that money would come somewhere down the way. But, you know, after you do it for 10 years and you're like, ah, I mean, I could talk here later about like our mergers and acquisitions experience and how those things are, you know, no matter how well you're doing as a business, a lot of it just comes down to timing and, and opportunities, and there's just no guarantee that anything is going to happen other than day-to-day generating real profits so that you can make money. So that just became the focus at some point and decided there were better ways to try to convince clients or to impress clients and prospects than with office space. I think so, you know part of this... Go ahead. I was going to say, I, I, I'm just like craving you to, to paint me a picture of like the day you went into uh, that business, right? That agency, the downtown office, and you know maybe the, the toggle switch happened or the, the light switch clicked where you look around and you see this thing that you've built and you realize maybe there's you, you want to change it. And, and for you, like it was completely turning it upside down. It was like, I want to ch- you know, go from 70 to one. Um, you know, what, what was that day like, or what was that aha moment in that moment where you're like, this is, this is not what I want. I want to change this. Well, I'll tell you, I think that the aha came after one of the worst moments or worst periods in our history. Um, when we were in the earlier days of creation chambers, struggling to grow uh, into the agency that we wanted to be, not struggling to grow, period, because we were doing 100% growth year over year, but just trying to turn into that agency that we wanted to be with some national recognition, we, we knew that there was a certain creative component that we were still missing. Even though the work that we were doing was top-notch, we didn't have the level of sizzle that your big advertising agencies might have, the stuff that was going to garner national attention just because of the quality of the creative. So 
I got this idea in my head based on an introduction from a friend that maybe if we acquired another agency, we'd be able to better fit into that hole. And uh, so we ended up doing that. There's a just luckily just a couple blocks away from our office, there was another agency nationally recognized for doing the dot com websites for companies like Chipotle and Gorilla Glue and so on. So we knew that that was that one side that we might need to really be able to take things to the next level. Um, we were not in a position to pay cash, so it ended up being a stock deal, and I went from being a 95% owner of Creation Chamber to being like a 47% owner of the combined company with the, the owners from that agency that were brought on board in the acquisition. So the idea here was, look, let's blow this thing up and sell it to one of the big advertising agency holding companies, uh, you know, these, these global brands. And really didn't do enough due diligence in terms of the partners that I was going to be in business with uh, to see if there was really good synergy there. The idea across the entire team was, yes, let's build this thing up for a year and then try to sell it for millions of dollars and then we'd be able to walk away. But around the time we did our acquisition, things in that whole mergers and acquisitions market really started to change, really started to dry up. And we found ourselves in business with one another in a challenging economy where none of the holding companies were doing any acquisitions anymore and really didn't enjoy working together. And I'm not saying that my partners were bad. I'm not saying that I'm bad. I'm just saying that we ended up not being a good fit for each other at all. And it was pretty miserable to come into work every day at that point. And we had, at that time, we were around 65, 70 employees. We were burning through somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 grand a month just in payroll. Oof. And yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was a struggle. And when the business is shrinking and you have to start considering things like layoffs and so on, it was, it was a challenge. I had put somewhere in the neighborhood of $90,000 on my personal American Express card just to fund us through some relatively bad periods. So we ended up in this uh, board meeting where it was really clear that none of us wanted to work together anymore. And within a period of about 45 minutes, um, we walked out with me tendering a resignation as CEO of the company. And we had a signed letter of intent for me to essentially do a reverse merger. So to split back off what was essentially the original creation chamber chunk of the business and for me to take that. And the whole idea there was that, look, this will be a 10 to 12 person shop now, and I will actually have an opportunity to kind of start over. And even since then, I've realized how much value or perceived value there is in this kind of a scenario. If any one of us could say, I'm just going to start from scratch with new clients, new systems, new employees, whatever, we would probably change the majority of the way we do business. Um, so at that period of time, it was like, I can walk away from everything from our office lease, our equipment leases, the way we did all of our technical infrastructure and so on. So this was a big aha because this was, look, there, number one, I've reached a point now where I have confidence in my own abilities. Um, so I know that I could start over and do things a whole lot better than we did in the first time. And I'd get to leave some of these headaches behind because I would do a spinoff of the company. I'd get to leave that stuff behind. So that was really appealing. Would you say? And, would you say when you were in that moment of like walking away from that 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 kind of conglomerized agency and in, in starting over? Was that like a moment of 
fear and uncertainty about the future or were you really, I mean, what I'm hearing from you is maybe you were more optimistic about like, you know, you were in such a bad place, like the future could only be better if we parted ways. But like in that moment of like massive change for yourself and the business, was it like, I'm kind of freaked out about what's going to happen next or I can't wait to get this like weight off my shoulders? It was a combination of both, but I would say it was more stress, you know, more fear of the unknown because nothing was guaranteed. And remember that this all happened within a very short period of time. So even though I'm sure it was something that I had considered at the time, the decisions were made almost instantaneously for this split to happen. So there were still a lot of moving parts and it turned out that our letter of intent ended up going nowhere. Uh, My partners ended up bringing in a business consultant who took a look at the books and said the chunk of the business that Phil wants to take is the only chunk that's profitable right now. (laughs) So So you're on to something, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. So that didn't end up working out. And we kind of ended up in limbo for about 12 months where, uh, you know, I had ownership in the the company still. And so I had non-compete issues there. Um, but at the same time, there was nothing I could do to really get out of that situation. If you're in a marriage that's not working out, you can go get a divorce. If you're in a business with partners and it's not working out, unless you have very specific language in your partnership agreement, there's nothing you can do to get out. You cannot go to the government and say, you know what, I'll leave everything behind, all my stock, they can just take it, nothing. Unless it's, unless you have some sort of buy-sell clause or something in your partnership agreement, there you're, you're stuck there. And that's what I found for the next year that there really wasn't anything I could do, especially since I only owned about 47%. I didn't have the majority, so I couldn't do anything to, to force an out for myself. It took us a year to negotiate a split. But uh, obviously, you know, I walked away from that. I, and I've talked about this with you, I think, in, in the earlier years when we first met, that I, after that, put together a list of requirements that I would need if I was ever going to be partners in a company again. And it was all based on that experience and to be able to ensure that there would never be deadlock and to ensure that if things were ever not working out, everybody had an option for moving on. And I was going to ask you, you know, a lot of people out there maybe right now are considering partnerships or maybe they're in a partnership where it maybe hasn't gone south, which I would recommend is a great time to uh, re-solidify a partnership agreement if you don't have one already. Uh, You know, are there a couple of things that you would, you know, bullet points or specific things that people should make sure they, they cover or talk about with their partner or maybe with a lawyer that, uh, that would have helped you sidestep 12 months of, of, you know, uh, treading water. Yeah. And I think we had good attorneys at the time and I'm sure that they made some strong recommendations for us, but I think like a lot of partners, we just went into it with rose colored glasses on, you know, thinking, look, we're just going to try to blow this up and sell it. It doesn't really matter if we like each other or not. We're not going to be working together that long. And that sort of thing is short-sighted. So whatever an attorney recommends, really take it to heart. But I'd have to pull up that document to see the full list of things I put together. But I can tell you that first and foremost, whenever possible, try to have one person, one partner in that company owning at least 51%. And for me, Following that experience, it was never, I'm going to own at least 51%. It didn't matter who it was necessarily, but somebody needed to be in charge. Somebody needed to have the ultimate say. Um, Now, obviously, this becomes a challenge if you're doing three partners trying to split that equally. Um, But if it's just you and one other partner, 
then I think it should be pretty easy to say, all right, well, one of us is going to get a little bit more stock than the other just to keep things clean. Whether you have that or not, the second biggest one that I had was a buy-sell clause. And these can come in a number of different forms, but the one that I've always liked the most is where one partner can say to any other partner, I'm going to buy your stock for this much money per share. And then that other partner or other partners have to either accept that offer or beat the offer on the opposite direction. It makes it very fair because if I come to you and say, hey, you know what, I'm gonna give you $1 per share, I'm lowballing you, then you could turn around and say, well, I'm going to give you a dollar five per share. And now you just got all of my stock for a very cheap price, right? So it just has some built-in built checks and balances that are really good. Uh, so those are the two main ones that I remember. Um, I continue to consider them today on any kind of a deal that I do. And like I said, there may be some others that I just don't recall off the top of my head. But certainly working with an attorney in something like this is essential. You're not going to paste this together from things you get on Google. <laughs> or at least we, we'd suggest you definitely would not. Um, <laughs> so, so like, you know, you guys eventually figured this out. You wake up one day and you don't have this, you know, behemoth of a business. Like, did you feel like some of your identity was tied up in, in that company? Or did you feel a sense of like relief and like, okay, now I get to like start over and I get to start Like, was there a, did you feel like the blank canvas was, was like more, uh, enticing than, than this, like the ego that maybe came from this really, really big business? You know, it continues to be a challenge today. And at the time there was, it was certainly very heavy on the relief side. I was just happy to know that I was going to be able to move forward and continue to continue to build creation chamber the way I had been wanting to for the previous year. But at the same time, even today, there is something very different about being an independent consultant or running a very virtual agency, a very small agency compared to having something that you felt like was very legitimate. And I could kind of, I could go to networking events and people would say, so what do you do? And I'd say, I'm CEO of Creation Chamber. First of all, saying CEO um, when it is a real company feels a whole lot better than saying I'm the CEO when I know I'm the only person in the company. In, in, um, in like, I guess, uh, and since you've been on both sides, I mean, is there anything that you can tell somebody about, like, like, does it really matter or is it something that just matters to us? Like, do the clients really care that you're, you know, the CEO of this big 70 person company or like, uh, or, or does it, is it more something that we, we spend more time worrying about ourselves than, than what our, our customers potentially do? I actually do think it's both. We have the luxury of 15 years of really good business under our belt, and that helps us in a lot of situations. But in others, clients are, clients are different, and they maybe in some cases are smart enough to ask the better questions to really dig deeper. And whether it's justified or not, they do have preferences about the, the size and the nature of the company they work with. So I think there are more cases than not where our clients simply don't ask, or they make an assumption you know, about our size, just based on our experience and our client list and so on. And these days, it's a whole lot easier. I mean, we have a number of people working for us, but let's just take five years ago when it was essentially me. I, I did not walk around saying, hi, I'm Bill Lockwood Incorporated. I was still operating under the name Creation Chamber at the time. And setting the impression that we were a real agency with, uh, with a team of people. 
And there are certainly people within that period of time, clients and prospects, who would want to know, all right, well, where's your office? Let me come meet your team. Um, you know, what, give us the, your full list of bios for everybody who will be working on this project. There are myriad situations where we run into the challenge of having to explain exactly what the makeup of our agency is. So I'm just kind of curious how, how you, you know, if I were one of your potential customers and I said, uh, you know, can we come by your office for a, a meet and greet? Like, how do you currently respond to that question today? Well, we do have office space today. Uh, it's, it's small. We're with a company called Regis right now, which is an international company, you know, the executive suite kind of space. So we have a place where we can work and then there are conference rooms and the whole nine yards. So it's not... I wouldn't call it impressive, even though it's nice space, but it's it's pretty clearly shared office space. You know, when you get into the lobby and you see more logos than just ours. Um, but that works out pretty well. But even for the past five years, we've maintained some sort of a relationship like that. And there was another shared office space, independent company here in my neighborhood for the past five years. And we just had a partnership with them where that once every three months or so that I actually needed to meet with a client in our office, we could do it there. And it was just set up such that, you know, our logo was still on the wall and uh, the receptionist was smart enough to understand the dynamics of companies like ours. So it never was an issue. When clients came in, everything looked perfectly legit. I don't think they asked any questions about the, the nature of the space at that time. So I would recommend that at a minimum. You know, I mean, if you need to be able to meet somewhere other than a coffee shop or at your house, and it's a situation where you can't convince the client to let you visit them and it needs to be the other way around, then just having something like that is a very inexpensive way, you know, if even if it's just a couple hundred bucks a month to be able to have a real place where you can meet. After like a decade of experience with, you know, building that business up to where it was and then kind of at some levels like walking away, uh, you know, you did get to kind of start over. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs out there probably think to themselves like, you know, I mean, I'm sure at least once a week, like uh, maybe I should start this over. Or maybe I should start from scratch. Or this is, you know, I feel like that's such a common thing. Like it's kind of the 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 uh, age old like grass is greener type of uh, thinking process. But you actually got to do that, right? Like you got to say, okay, I am going to start over. I'm going to start from scratch. Uh, what was that like in the early days of starting over? Did you really feel like you were starting from scratch, or did did some of that momentum, that reputation, come from your your prior venture? Reputation, clients to a large degree, um, capabilities, all that stuff came from the prior experience. Now, I think what you really got to feel like you're starting over on was that stuff that clients don't necessarily see. It's all that stuff that's been clogging up your hallway closet for the past eight years, right? It's the stuff that you know is there and that creates problems. And depending on your personality type, getting rid of those things can be a really big deal. And it was to me, just knowing that I got to walk away from all the infrastructure that we had, all the complexities that we had was great in terms of peace of mind. What were some of those complexities? Like what maybe in, in kind of compare and contrast, like what were some of the things that you guys were doing as the, the mega agency that you then kind of redesigned uh, from the ground up? Well, let's start with our biggest expense, which was staff. Even if you say, you know what, we can do this with one-third of the staff that we have today, it can be difficult to tell two-thirds of your staff that they're going to be laid off. 
and to tell the remaining one third that their jobs are still secure and you're sorry that some of the people had to go, you know, to maintain that trust. So just being able to start over with staff and adding only the people that you really need and want at that point is huge. It's something that's difficult to do without really being able to reinvent the entity. Other things that I, I still to this day really remember because I'm really affected by the amount of infrastructure that we had. I've mentioned this in the past, but with our biggest office space, which was like 8,500 square feet, we ended up having to do all of our own ethernet cable, telephone cable, all of these things. And that was after moving in. And those things alone were like a $25,000 expense, 25 grand just to put in wires. And, you know, it ends up being a payment plan. So we're just paying some company for that over the course of, say, three years. And then to buy all the phones and servers back in those days, we didn't have things like Dropbox and Gmail. And so everything was in our office. And, you know, you got all these licenses for Microsoft Server. You have all the hardware. You have the tape backups and all of this other infrastructure. It was just massively expensive. I mean, we're talking about probably more than $10,000 a month just in lease fees for the infrastructure. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's real money. Um, and then everything that we do in terms of process, that was complex. Uh, the systems that we use, project management setup, um, the way that we kind of ran projects through the system uh, where you've got account managers, salespeople, project managers, and then tech leads and creative directors and, designers and so on. It was all just very heavy. And luckily, with my experience as a web developer, I had really served roles across almost every one of those disciplines. So when I, when I shrunk things down and said, we're starting from scratch here, I was really able to do pretty much all of those roles on my own. And that taught us something very valuable in terms of kind of what the, the web 2.0, 3.0 revolution was really about. And it was that you can have a very light process and that can make you a whole lot more profitable and, in my opinion, a whole lot higher quality. Let's talk a little bit more about profitability because I think that that's something when, when a lot of folks are creating their business uh, early on, maybe they're not focused enough on. Uh, and, and if you are trying to create a business that's maybe uh, in the image of what you guys had created with tons of employees and the, the big space and all that kind of stuff, like like best case scenario, best year possible, like what kind of margins were you guys looking at with that agency? Back in our earlier days, it ended up being somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 35 percent on those good years. And then we would be in the negatives on the, on the worst year. But um, there were a couple factors at play in those earlier days. Number one, my girlfriend at the time was our lead salesperson and she was our primary rainmaker. So you have to understand that when you've got big commissions, like say 20% off of gross, being paid out to salespeople, and that's going right back into your household. That helps out a lot. <laughs> so, so just hire. What I'm hearing from you, the the takeaway from today is, uh, date somebody who's going to be your salesperson, <laughs> or better yet, move to Utah, find several wives, you know, husbands, whatever the case is. <laughs> there we go. We got a whole sales you. team. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, obviously, that was that was kind of the, the dynamic <laughs> on a much smaller scale for us. 
And the fact that I was already a web developer and not just an executive or salesperson or anything like that, but I was able to do user experience for our projects and a lot of the design and the front end coding, that sort of thing. It made us very profitable just because my girlfriend and I, uh, and later on my wife and I, ended up being two of the biggest producers in the company. So out of 12 people, you know, we were probably doing at least 50% of the work ourselves. 50% of the results were being generated by us. So that made it a whole lot easier. Not everybody can be in that scenario, of course. Did that, uh, did those margins eventually, did that change at all as the company grew bigger, as you guys tried to, to do these, these big, these big things like take over Denver? Yeah, absolutely. And for a number of reasons. Um, number one, I think it, this was a really bad idea, but it was as we grew and we wanted to be more legitimate and we were feeling more legitimate, we started spending money on more things because we had the confidence to do so. Just because you have the ability to do things doesn't mean you necessarily should, you know, <laughs> so adding all sorts of benefits on there and we had our 401k matching and paying all of our health uh, benefits and just all sorts of things left and right. We would throw big holiday parties at uh, Mile High in Vesco Field at the time, hanging out with the Broncos, that sort of thing. You know, just kind of money left and right because we felt like we could do it. So that was not real good. The other thing, we started spending a lot more money on staff. And we try to justify all of those decisions by just believing that it's going to make the end product better. So it's more than going to pay for itself. It didn't really work out that way for a number of reasons. But I think one of the biggest is just that you still have staff turnover. So you can invest a lot of money in a person and then maybe they end up going somewhere else before you really reap the benefits. So just a lot of money down the drain on various things. Uh, but Definitely, once we got beyond, say, five, year five or six, we really started growing quickly, especially with our acquisition, and the profit margin just started to tank. It was a perfect storm because we had all of the merger acquisition costs. We were very top-heavy uh, with what were, I think, four or five partners at the time, all collecting very big salaries. And then the mini recession, whatever it was, of like 2008 hit. And so our clients had smaller budgets. We had fewer clients. We had to go through layoffs. So it was not a good situation in terms of profitability there. Learned a lot from that. Sorry, keep going. Learned a lot from that. And it's made a huge difference over the past seven years of being in business, though. Yeah, I was I was just going to ask you, you know, how did that change when you got to create the company from the ground up? I mean, have you spent more time focused on margins and profitability? I, I feel like this is an, a place where it's really easy to, um, you know, make decisions to feel more legitimate, like hiring like full time staff, like to feel like okay, I've got staff, I've got teams, I've got employees. Like I remember having my own agency and feeling like, you know, that like how, when people would ask me about my business and, you know, telling them how many people worked for me, like it just, it seemed like part of helping to make me legitimate. Like it, it felt mm-hmm. like this case I was uh, making with people, either prospective clients or, or with other people um, in the industry. So like I, I hear from you that you're maybe not trying to feel so legitimate now and maybe you're more focused on the, the outcomes of the business. So what are some of those things you've done that have changed that and how have those outcomes changed? Yeah, I think that every time I run into a situation now where I can spend some money, whether it's getting office space at all or getting bigger office space, whatever the case is, 
I remember back to 2008, 2009 and what a struggle it was. And you just got to keep in mind that the the economy, the, the market is going to ebb and flow no matter what. And we go through periods like we have for the past few years where it just seems like everything's flying high and it's going to continue to grow. But it just, I mean, obviously anybody who's ever looked at any kind of a stock chart knows that things do not go up forever. So you got to make sure that you're just only spending money on what you need to spend your money on. I think that we've done a very good job of that. And I think it really speaks to what an enormous impact that experience of 2008, 2009 had on me. Um, you know, you, when I started the company, it wasn't a very bad time, economically speaking, but that we, we started off knowing exactly what we were dealing with. It's not like we hit hard times. We could only eat what we killed and it made that period of time really good. So when you get into year seven, before you even start to have any kind of real challenges, you know, you've, you've already built up a lot of habits by then and it can be a real struggle. So these days we try to keep everything very light and it's all about um, trying to do things in a way that we really believe is going to be smarter and more profitable for us. And it's, there are still challenges because there are bad habits from years and years ago that are still difficult to overcome. Anytime I, anytime we're looking at any kind of growth, if we're going to add on a new line of business to the company, some new area of focus that we want to have, the first thing that pops into my mind is, okay, what senior level person can I bring on board so that we can do this and do this right? And then I have to manually talk myself down from that ledge and think, you know what, that's not the way to do it. How can we actually outsource this? How can we do this overseas and still have quality? And so far, even though it's challenging, so far we have not run into a situation where we couldn't outsource something, get the same level of quality with a lot less risk and certainly a lot less financial um, responsibility. So keeping a very lean core organization, relying a lot more on outsourcing. You know, I hear from uh, people all the time that they really struggle with outsourcing. They struggle with that quality thing. Um, what are you doing to make that work and to, to get the same quality for your clients as having a, a senior in-house you know, employee, somebody that's under your roof where there's you know, daily meetings or a lot of quality control or shared mindset? Um, how are you able to get that same quality, that same outcome, uh, but with folks overseas? Well, I'll tell you, I think uh, there certainly are challenges in it, but I think that the biggest challenge is just in managing that kind of a relationship when you try to scale. And the re what I'm trying to say there is that I think if you find a system for outsourcing that works for you when you have 20 clients, it may completely fall apart when you have 40 clients. So we're having to constantly adjust or reinvent what that dynamic looks like. We've had challenges finding the right resources overseas to work with, but um, we end up switching back and forth between different partners, partially because of that, but also because things just aren't the right fit at the right time. Right now, we started sending work to a group that we worked with four years ago and stopped working with because the quality just wasn't there. What's a couple of things or one thing that you do with your outsource team that gets you that same level of result that you would with an internal team? Well, these days we certainly maintain a very flat hierarchy and I like people who can do more than one type of work, but at the same time, I think this goes along with what you're saying. You can't assume that 
if internally you would have a project manager and a designer and maybe a senior developer and a junior developer that you could outsource to somebody and have them be responsible for all of that. So now they're going to be their own project manager somehow, their own account manager somehow. I think you need to remember that when you're outsourcing, you're probably outsourcing for a single role. And maintaining the project management responsibilities in-house is probably a good way to go. So keep the, the expectations for role, for responsibilities of those outsourced resources as focused as you possibly can. I think that in situations like that, in, in our history, I could look back and see the areas where we didn't perform as well as we wanted to. That would have made a really big difference. Um, I think that you know when we're outsourcing, it's primarily overseas. And there's certainly a whole different dynamic to that than just finding a, what, a person who could actually be a full-time in-house resource for you, but happens to live in another city and is only needed part-time. But when you're dealing with language barriers and time zones and these sorts of things, it really br brings a lot of other factors into play. That changes quite a bit for us. Our expectations, number one, are going to be lower. Our, um, our, our eye for quality, looking out for things that could possibly go wrong or that are delivered wrong with any of the, the code or the assets that were being delivered from those outsourced resources, we're, we're going to be digging a whole lot deeper to try to make sure that those things are up to snuff. Um, we definitely don't think of our overseas resources as real employees simply because the, the whole dynamic, the whole workflow is completely different. So, so you're, you're treating uh, an outsourced team as, as a separate organization. You're kind of looking at them differently than a full-time or internal team member. Um, but you're still very actively engaged with them, maybe in a different way. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, Phil, like what, what would you say is one thing, you know, I've heard, I mean, I love the story between like the, you know, starting basically a business from scratch, growing up kind of this typical business that a lot of us, I think, have in our heads about what a business should look like and, and feeling legitimate and then kind of starting from scratch, starting over. Uh, and now you're, you're several years into that, uh, kind of, I, I put new in air quotes, of course you can't see me doing the air quotes, but, um, what's <laughs> one thing that you're excited about creation chamber today that's going on right now in your business? For the, you kind of split Creation Chamber into two eras, like right down the middle. So our first seven and a half years and our, our last seven and a half years. And for the past seven and a half years, it's been all about trying to come up with new workflows, new processes, new ideas, completely new ways of doing our business. Whereas for the first half of our history, it was the complete opposite. We were just trying to find other people who were doing what we thought was a good job and then copying them. And, you know, you still see a lot of that today. And certainly anybody who's in a situation where they're starting something on their own right now and trying to grow and maybe they don't have a ton of experience would want to do that same thing. It's natural. But what I'm excited about day to day is just that we're not really following anybody else's rules. We feel like we have this blank slate and we get to come up with all of these really creative ideas for things that are going to make our projects go more smoothly, be more profitable, higher quality and more fun for clients. So really, that's what, that's what gets me up and, and keeps me going, is just being able to exercise that kind of creativity across the entire business. What would you say is the vision uh, looking forward for Creation Chamber? Like, where are you guys at? Uh, a year out, three years out, 10 years out? I think the shorter the period of time, the clearer that is. I, I know that that sounds 
logical. Um, but I think the the lower focus or clarity we have longer term actually comes from things other than it just being a longer period of time. And, and it's tied more to just kind of what our industry is going to look like in 10 years or 15 years. But for the short term here, we're just continuing to hone our, our workflow and trying to grow without increasing our in-house staff substantially. And we're adding new lines of business to our offerings for the first, uh, let's call it, 14 years that we were in business, maybe even 15-ish, we designed and developed websites. That was pretty much it. And we're moving into a lot more of the SEO these days and inbound marketing, all of these other corollary services that obviously are very good upsells for our clients. So um, what I see over the next three years is just that we continue to build those things out so that we're more of a full service agency and we're not just building the foundational website but once the website is built, then we're trying to generate real results with it on an ongoing consulting basis. So certainly uh, you'll see more of a recurring revenue model for us, even though we've had a good chunk of recurring revenue over the past five years. I think this is something that would really tilt the scale so that we are, are heavier on the recurring revenue side and much lighter on the project-based side. Beyond that, Hard to say, you know, it was about a year ago that I came across this, uh, like a Kickstarter or something called The Grid. Have you heard of that one? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not, I, I've heard of like The Grid website frameworks, but is this something else? Well, yeah, this one's different. So the company's called The Grid and it, they touted themselves as AI created websites. So artificial intelligence. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have heard of these. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, they were looking for their funding. I, we, I was like, hey, you know, why not? Throw in our 90 bucks or whatever it was to be one of the original founders. And they've been going on for over a year now, making very little headway. But like nearly every industry you can think of, AI is going to take over the majority of what we do. So it's only a matter of time. And I think that's the part that I really don't have a lot of clarity on. Um, and I I suspect I have more clarity than most people just because of the amount of time I put into researching what things might look like in 15 years. But um, I, I would hope that anybody who listens to this podcast does the same thing that I do and thinks not just of the growth path that our industry is taking, but how it could almost change, maybe even be eliminated in some way, shape, or form virtually overnight. If you think about, uh, let's go back, a hundred and some years when you've got companies who are in the horse and buggy industry, right? And they're really innovating. They're coming up with stronger, faster horses with more endurance and their wagons are getting higher quality, stronger, lighter, and so on. They can be innovating all day long, but when that internal combustion engine comes along, it doesn't matter how good you're doing in the horse and buggy business. Your business is done. So I think I'm always kind of looking out for what that new change is going to be. What is going to replace the way we do our business today? It doesn't even have to be about the methods that we use, the tools that we use. It's that the underlying rules could completely change. If, if the way marketing happens, advertising happens, changes fundamentally, that could eliminate most or all of the need for the things that we're doing today. If you think, you know, I've been in this business for 20 years. I, I probably made my first website about 20 years ago. 
And looking at the very first website that I built compared to the ones that we're building today, there's not a huge difference. I mean, we're still opening these things up in very similar browsers and we're still navigating page to page. Flash animation came and went, so you can't even say that the, the interactions are substantially different. Sure, the look and feel is different, and we have some different standards, and the code that's, that's behind it has evolved, but it's still a website. I think that's pretty incredible for such a quick-moving industry to say that what we're building today is so similar to what we were building 20 years ago. And to me, that means we're probably due for a very big fundamental shift in our business soon. So I want to shift gears now and do our quick lightning round. I feel like I could, I could, uh, we could probably talk for hours and hours about the uh, the last fourteen years. It's it's hard to condense them down into an hour. But uh, are you are you ready for the lightning round? Yeah, I think so. All right. Uh, so first up in the lightning round, what is the best advice you've ever received? Hire slowly, fire quickly. Which of your personal habits has contributed most to your success? I don't know what you'd call it, whether it's attention to detail, perfectionism, um, whatever, but I, I definitely think I'd call it attention to detail, understanding both the creative side of our business and the technical side of our business, you know, the user experience side, being able to have an appreciation for all of those things and deliver top-notch work across each one of those, whether it's by my own work or the hires that I bring into place. But when you have that top quality from end to end in what you're delivering, that's, I think, what makes the difference between an agency that can grow and be respected and successful and those that just kind of putter. Is there an internet resource like Evernote or a tool that you can share with our listeners? One that I want to throw out today um, is Excello. And some people may be familiar with that name because they used to be called Affinity Live. We looked at them years ago. They were very kind of CRM or sales funnel focus back in the day, but it had project management and accounting functions built in for agencies like ours. Was not a fan of the interface. I accidentally came across this website, the service called Excello a few weeks ago. And I was like, holy cow, this is exactly what we need for our business. After some digging, realized that it was the old Affinity Live and they apparently have gotten some huge amount of funding and completely revamped everything because it is incredible. If you want kind of a single platform for your agency that allows you to grow and manage staff and projects and expenses and invoicing and everything else, check it out now because it's pretty incredible. That's A-C-C-E-L-O.com. What is one uh, book that you would recommend and why? I read a lot, probably a book a week, and there are a lot that I could go with on this, but especially based on some of the stuff that I was talking about on the podcast today, I would recommend The Singularity is Near. Really good book, pretty long. It's like reading the Bible, which is fitting because it's pretty much like a Bible for futurism. But if you want to think about what our industry might look like only 10 or 15 years from now, no better source than this book. Is that a, it's Ray Kurzweil, is that right? That's right. Yeah, that, that is that is definitely a that's a thick and meaty read, but uh, definitely will get you into that. Uh, the future is, is is here now, or it's it's a it's a you know couple of years away. So that's definitely a, a good read. I like that. Uh, I definitely enjoy. It. I think it's on on uh, Audible just to get an idea of the size. It's I think it's a twenty four hour read, which is always you know wow. not not the typical six hour business book, but uh, definitely <laughs> a, a good one to to dive into. Uh, so, what can you? Uh, how can our audience uh, find out more about you? Uh, is there anything that you have that they can check out 
um, to, to learn more about Phil and Creation Chamber? Well, uh, as far as online goes, I'm in a little bit of limbo these days. Uh, you can always connect with me on LinkedIn, and many people from your group have. Same thing with Facebook now. I always tried to keep that very close in terms of friends and family, but I've decided to kind of open that up and just make it more of a, a business social outlet for me so we can connect on Facebook. There's creationchamber.com, uh, which is about to be replaced by a new, much more accurate, up-to-date and informational website, but you can at least bookmark it for now if you want to. And uh, philiplockwood.com. I think that currently redirects to creationchamber.com. But again, maybe just make a note of that. I think at some point here in the very near future, I'm going to end up doing uh, some sort of a more personal, whether it's a blog or a podcast. And I want it to be something unique and compelling. Um, so I don't know, probably be a healthy mix of web stuff, amateur futurism stuff, and just kind of some general personal types of things that I'm thinking about at the time. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to link out to creationchamber.com, uh, your, your Facebook, and also your, your LinkedIn profiles uh, in the show notes. You guys can take a look at that stuff if you're looking for direct links uh, to connect with Phil on any of those platforms. And uh, obviously, want to just you know, thank you a ton for uh, swinging by the program today, Phil. I think I've, I've learned a lot. I always you know, kind of measure whether we're doing a good job or not. If I'm, if I'm taking a lot of gold nuggets away from uh, these talks, and I feel like I learned a lot about your story today and just want to really uh, appreciate uh, you coming by the program today and um, wish you all the best with your business. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk soon, Phil.